Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. A teenager in Iran during the 1979 revolution, Mazier Minovi experienced firsthand how disruptive the impact of politics can be on economic security. Motivated by his personal experience, he would pursue a PhD in international finance and economic development and ultimately find his way to the investment industry in the early 1990s, just as the tequila crisis was underway. Mazier shares early lessons learned from navigating the complicated world of sovereign debt, recalling Russia's decision to simultaneously default and devalue in 1998. Our conversation shifts to present-day issues and the work Mazier is doing as CEO of Eurasia Group, where he spearheads a team delivering deep-dive analysis on geopolitical risks. Advising some of the largest investors and corporations globally, Mazier has sought to overlay experience gained over 25 years in markets, asking always, what's priced in? First, we talk inflation and the resulting election turnover of political parties that occurs more frequently when inflation is high. We also discuss geopolitical hotspots around the world, among them Russia, China, and even the U.S. On China, Mazier worries that the commitment to COVID-0 will prove costly from a growth perspective and that debt sustainability considerations should not be overlooked. On the U.S., as midterms approach and the 2024 election cycle comes into view, he and team are concerned about vulnerabilities in the present-day framework of elections. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Mazier Minovi. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Maziar Minovi. He is the CEO of Eurasia Group, a global political and geopolitical think tank and strategy firm with a lot to look at these days. It's great to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Thank you, Dean. Really appreciate being here, especially on a show that what I hear next month is going to be celebrating its fourth anniversary, which in podcast years, that's like 120, right? This is true. I was looking, and most podcasts don't make it past episode five, and we're at something around 105. So it's been a a real fun journey, and it's just great to be able to connect with professionals like yourself. And this particular conversation, I think, is just so timely, just the interaction of geopolitics and markets. I was making the point that, you know, governments are pretty active. They've been active in fixed income, but now we're active in currency markets. We're active in crude oil. So just to gather your perspective is going to be fantastic at this really interesting time for the world. Take us back to the beginning for you, just in terms of how you got your start in the industry. I know you've got some experience in the world of financial markets as well. So tell us just a little bit about yourself and your career path. All right. To really get the picture, I guess you have to go back a little bit before the start in the financial markets. I was born in Iran and went through the revolution there as a teenager. And obviously, as you might imagine, a teenager put in a context like that, politics really had an impact on me at an early age. And I escaped from the country through the Pakistani border, made my way eventually through Europe to the US, and was naturally fascinated with how politics can impact lives and really upend them, seeing what happened to 
my family, lots of our family friends, and the people around me. So come college time, come I had to decide on a major. I remember calling my dad up, who was a continent away, asking for his advice. And his main message was, you've made good decisions so far, keep it up. But remember, you are not like everybody else around you. You're a refugee. So whatever you do has to be something that takes care of the family. So I remember vividly as a sophomore in college, sitting around thinking, okay, I really like some geopolitics. What is it that gets me involved in that and sounds like it makes money? And I picked international finance and fast forward eight years later, seven years later, I was finished my PhD in international finance and economic development, not surprisingly gravitating to that intersection of politics and economics and markets. So my dissertation in the early 90s was all about privatization in Eastern Europe. That led me in 94 to the world of emerging markets where Eastern European sovereign bonds were just becoming a thing. There was no expert for that. So people either took fixed income experts and taught them the region or vice versa. And I was in the category of vice versa. So that's how I got to start in the business in 1994 right at the beginning of the Tessavona crisis. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, we had seen those periods, especially in the 90s. Maybe you can go into the turn of the century with, with Argentina, where currency crises, debt crises were not uncommon. And I guess maybe post-Argentina, we, we had a pretty long ride there of much less just in terms of that kind of volatility at the country level in terms of emerging markets. And so It'll be very interesting to get your take on those vulnerabilities now in light of the slow growth and high inflation environment we we find ourselves in. So that's a really interesting, really interesting start. And so just as you got into a seat, starting to look at these securities that sometimes become very dislocated, what were some of the early experiences you had just in, in analyzing trades and opportunities in emerging market debt? Yeah, I have to warn you, though, starting in current investing terms, I classify myself as an emerging market dinosaur. So the experiences that come to mind for me are definitely less front of mind for today's investor cohort, as I just experienced them at the IMF World Bank meetings. But I'd say the biggest early experience for me that really had a lasting impact was Russia in 1996. I went there right before and in the middle of the two rounds of the elections where Yeltsin was getting reelected in Russia, local T-bill rates were 200%. And the question was, would Yeltsin get elected? And if so, that would have been a really positive environment because we knew that the IMF was gonna come in and help out stabilize the country. And you could have a period of massively high rates and a stable exchange rate. And I remember vividly going there twice and within three or four weeks was something that in the context of the time where there was basically not even a sell side analyst or economist focused on Russia back then gave you informational advantages. And I came back really confident that I knew more than others and early in my careers making the big bet that 
Yeltsin was going to stick to power and that was going to obviously pay off in the short-term bonds with those sorts of yields or T-bills. But what really stuck with me was the aftermath because on that trip with me were a couple of other investors, some of which your listeners would know. One of them was David Tipper early in his career. Not early, he was already successful at the time and it left Goldman, but this is 96, so not a billionaire quite yet. My experience, fabulous guy. But the lesson I learned was he came back and there was also a Goldman prop trader that was with us. They came back, they put on massive bets and were able to really ride that wave. I came back to the Boston-based asset management company I was working in at the time and I couldn't get our risk managers to do the local T-bill market, couldn't get them to be okay with the size. So what we came out of that with was, yes, a positive trade, but nothing transformational. And that was, to me, both the lesson about getting that informational advantage and secondly, being aware of the context you're in and whether you can really then translate that into results. I think that was that was the eye-opener. And that was definitely leaning towards solutions that would suggest take on, give yourself the flexibility to take on a ton of risk. But I very quickly was then faced with the other side of the scenario. I don't know if you, you want to go that deep, Dean, but happy to go there. Well, I, I was going to say that, as you mentioned, Russia 1996, I certainly was thinking Russia summer 1998. And at least there's some saying out there that most debt defaults at the country level are ultimately political decisions, maybe not economic decisions. And so I was hoping you could riff on that kind of concept a little bit, maybe with the Russian default in 1998 as an example. Absolutely. I just have to scratch the painful scars on my back that flare up every time I think of that period. Yeah, I mean, by then I had made my way to what I thought was going to be my last job in finance and before I became a massively successful at LTCM. And I was based in London with a mandate of working with other strategists on the team there as they saw EMU coming. A lot of their strategists and fixed income ARP desks in Europe were going to have to retool and taking those learnings into markets like Turkey, South Africa, Russia, Poland was part of my mandate, partnering with those folks. So in 1998, I mean, those who remember or read about it know that the Russia default is always associated with the downfall of LTCM from the inside. It certainly was more complicated, and I wouldn't say that it was a trigger, but it was certainly a part of what was going on. But what I remember then was thinking about various long Russia trades and modeling out in an expected return way the risk of return if they defaulted, if they devalued, and trying to get to an a priori risk return for an investment in Russia. And I remember showing the result of my work to our senior partner in, in London, which I know you've had on your show, one of my mentors, most respected folks I've met in this business, Victor Agani. And he looked at it and he says, well, 
what about the probability that they default and depreciate at the same time? And I remember just being incredulous that he would think that. I said, well, that would be stupid if they did that. Why, if you've already done one, why suffer the consequences of doing the other? So I, I pushed back and kind of we compromised on a number that was higher than I was expecting, but nowhere near base case. Rolled the clock forward. A lot of what I expected came true. They came to the IMF in the summer of 98. The IMF gave them the largest package it had given any country to date relative to the size of their economy. And for a brief instant, it seemed like things stabilized. But that was where politics intervened and where I started understanding that the name of the game in emerging markets when you go to these countries and talk to the various actors is be prepared to hear lies. But it's about the changes, how those lies change over time, that is where the information is. But at the early stage, I was still in learning mode. So certainly got a shock when when they had to do both. And to me, that's what I keep coming back with to as a lesson, both in my future investing career, which then lasted another 25 or actually 20 years past that. But also when I talk to investors, younger investors now, which is don't think that only about what the countries politically can do, but it's that interaction between what they can and want to do and what they're forced to do which is where reality is. That actually, I'm sure we'll talk about China later. To me, that's the most interesting thing when talking about China risk going forward right now is people keep spending a ton of time, including us, thinking about what will the Chinese leadership want to do. And that's for sure is important, but they're not going to be able to do everything they want. They're going to be forced into corners and mixing those two and balancing them is where the art comes in. You make a really interesting point there, something I've been thinking a lot about, which is asset prices, market prices. They are a response to changing conditions, to new information. Earnings go down, earnings disappoint, a stock price goes down, maybe the economy slows, the S&P goes down. But these prices are also a cause. They are limiting sometimes in terms of what central banks can do, what governments can do. We obviously just saw that with, with the UK in terms of this emergency response. So prices sometimes really do get in the way, <laughs> sometimes mostly in an unwelcome fashion. So that'll be really interesting to talk about as well. So talk to us about your joining of Eurasia Group. Maybe give us some background on the firm. That'll be very interesting. And then just you joining and you know just the, the broad practice of Eurasia Group. Sure. So... Just to fill out the picture, I ended up being a macro investor for about 25 years, the last half of which was at Goldman. And sometime around early 2019, I made the jump to help lead the Eurasia Group. And I joke about it that that was probably, in retrospect, the best trade of my career, leaving emerging markets in 2000, end of 2018 and coming to the geopolitical world, because what I left has been a basically a one-way trip down, and obviously geopolitics politics has been the gift that keeps on giving in the last few years. It's a really interesting place to be, and there's a lot, when I came in, I thought that one can do to make what we do 
much more relevant to investors and clients just because of an experience of being a consumer of this information and the analysis over two decades. The firm at its core started out with Ian in Bremer wandering around the stands in the early to mid 90s as one of the earliest experts when he was getting his PhD in Stanford about the politics of the former Soviet Union states. That evolved into going around with some adventurous macro investors at the time. And in fact, the first two clients of the firm were Ken Griffin and Citadel, as well as Goldman Sachs, trying to get informational advantage in the region and benefit from it. So that was the core of it. And I'd say the first 10, 12 years of the firm, they did that over a broader and broader canvas, but really focused on geographic political analysis for portfolio managers and investors. Over the last decade, that's broadened to the point that such investors are now about half the client base of Eurasia. We have an equally large concentration of clients among the largest corporations in the world. And the biggest corporations in the main economic areas are well represented in our client list. So that really has necessitated a growth in expertise from a sectoral perspective. So Eurasia was the first firm to create a group called Geotechnology at an intersection of geopolitics and technology. We have energy commodities group that works hand in hand with our experts in sustainability and really focusing on geopolitics of climate. Really lucky to have both an OPEC old hand as well as the former head of sustainability at IFC leading that group and other sectors along the way. So that kind of opened up a whole range of other combinations of political analysis at the country level and sectoral analysis that then has come back and been a rich area for analysis and conversations with investing clients. So today, when we talk about the repercussions of the recently announced exports controls of the U.S. on China, being able to use both the deep dive analysis of our geotech folks as well as our supply chain experts within the industrials group to come back and see like how serious are these export controls? What are the implications of that for China's ability to continue to perform so well in the tech field in the next three to five years? That's the sort of analysis that now in the last five years that say we've been really putting together. So what our typical investors and clients on the portfolio side see, at least the ones who were engaged with us a decade ago, it's a much richer canvas now. And just a plug for our media group as well, you know, our mission at EG, the mission I signed up for and came over here for is be the place where people come to find out about the world in interesting, I'm sorry, in unbiased, analytical and engaging ways. And that last bit to really explain what's going on and engage in dialogue in ways that are clear and stick with you is, is, is a meaningful part of what we want to do. Because of that, we created a media arm as well, G Zero Media, that we can get into if you like. But 
the combination of those allowed us to expand what we do now into events and working with clients to really both get the content that feeds into their strategic decision-making over and above investing, and then be able to shape and promote that message out. As you were describing some of the work that Eurasia does, I was thinking about the podcast that we did with your colleague, Alex Kazan. This was, I want to say, 2019. And one of the topics was the impending tech Cold War. And so that got me thinking just about how you coordinate the resources, the different practice groups, because if you have a tech Cold War, you certainly need a lot of expertise in that vertical, in that kind of sector, but you also really have to be able to really appreciate the the geopolitical backdrop. So how do you coordinate the different practice groups just in terms of where their work overlaps, where there's, there's synergies in terms of coming up with the recommendations that the team ultimately does? Welcome to Alex and I's daily challenge. It's not easy, but the most obvious and interesting way that that happens is we have a morning meeting every day for half an hour where we discuss the most relevant issues of the day. That's where analysts, be they a sector analyst or a country analyst, talk about their evolving views and what they are going to write in a note or say in a conference call. And we have all of us, it's about 1995 professionals around that meeting. It's very concise. It's high level. People are challenged. We think about ways issues can interact. And that helps. It's one of the ways that we try to integrate and sharpen our message. If it wasn't against 15 different ethical boundaries, giving clients access to those morning meetings, I think would be fabulous because it's probably the most stimulating part of most of our days as well. But that's one way we have longer term. We have issue briefings and meetings to try to really push the agenda forward. We also have a what we call a macro team. We use that term somewhat differently than in the market, but it's really where we're talking about geopolitical issues that pan across regions and sometimes sectors. And give you an example, when... Back in April of last year, we were very concerned about COVID-related growth in China. And again, I spent a career as an investor, and, and China is a big focus of mine. We have big networks of economic analysts, both in the firm and outside, to draw on. What we decided to do was, let's do a series of notes on the political implication of China growing at 3% in 2022. Well, let's get some of your current views and work on some of the big issues, and we'll drill down into the specifics, but maybe just start with, I'll kind of put this question out there, and I think it relates to some of what I've seen in your work on the politics of inflation shocks. That's a a shared issue amongst just about every country at this point. But the big picture, I guess, where I'm wondering is just around this intersection of markets, of central banks, of geopolitical forces. How would you rate this intersection at this point? Is there an intensification of these issues relative to previous cycles? Is it related to inflation? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Sure. And and if I can just start with some context here, as a consumer of political and geopolitical information, 
one of my pet peeves was always seeing the political analysts come to the office and talk breathlessly about whatever the area of their focus, build the argument analytically, and then have this pause revealing the ultimate conclusion to which one as an investor looked at and said, well, yeah, duh, that's priced in. So one of my missions when I first came here was to try to up our game there and try to infuse a market and macro sensibility and context to the political analysis. And that's why we started a geoeconomics group that's now quite robust. The role there is not to make ISM projections. It's not to propose butterfly trades, but it's, it's to have enough of a grounding in what's going on macroeconomically and in the markets to really get at the question of what's priced in so that when we do make political inferences, it's something that's value add. So in the context of the question you just asked, the intersection of central banks, inflation and politics and markets, to me, the joy of being at a place like this is digging deep in a question like that. So as we got this big inflationary spike, we were having one of our internal discussions and I turned around to some of our bigger brain political analysts and said, so what does the literature say about government longevity after massive inflation spikes? There was lots of wordage coming back at me, but nothing that would satisfy uh, you, Dean, or, or any of our listeners. So we looked deeper and found out there's actually very little analysis done on that. So we put our geoeconomics team on the task of actually creating the database and looking at what happens to governments after large inflation spike in the context of the inflation volatility history of individual countries. And what we found is striking. We found that in countries that have elections, that hold elections, during the inflation spike or in the two years after, the risk of a government turnover was about 80%. And you see that in the experience of the elections we've had so far in the last year or so, where government after government has fallen. I think the only country that has not changed hands is Urban's Hungary which you know we're all familiar with the methods he uses to maintain control. So 80% is a very high number. As an investor, your next question is, well, what's the normal turnover in elections because governments turn over all the time? That number is 40%. So first order political implication of the inflation spikes we've seen is that looking ahead at the countries that have elections in the next year or two, you're going to have to expect a lot of turnover. Why is it? that there is a lot of turnover because popular dissatisfaction, both with the high inflation itself, as well as the policies of governments, especially in resource-constrained countries, which are typically emerging markets, and this year UK could be added to that, the reactions that have to happen to contain that inflation. And obviously in a world that has shifted towards inflation targeting central banks, First and foremost, that means significant rate increases, which we're in the midst of. That makes no one happy. So the bigger risk 
the most immediate risk in that context we're worried about is government change. What does that mean for policy framework going forward in, in the short term? There's also longer term implications in, that we can go into about more and more political questioning of, in fact, inflation targeting central banking as the norm in the medium term, as well as ultimately both the fiscal response that we've seen post-COVID and to the inflation spike and these high rates, re-emerging questions about debt sustainability in the more fragile economies and, and some of the larger economies in the world. It's, it's such an interesting time when, when you kind of think about that term bond market vigilantes, which sort of left the lexicon for a couple of decades, maybe from James Carville to a couple of weeks ago, it was a dormant concept, but the reawakening around the gilts issue in the UK was just striking. And maybe that's a very specific kind of market structure issue with how they tried to hedge these long dated liabilities. Perhaps that's very unique to the UK, but certainly should be some warning sign, not just to central banks, but to governments as well, that these markets can turn on you in a hurry. You sort of referenced it there just in terms of not just EM, but DM and debt sustainability issues. Talk to us a little bit about what's what's on your mind there. I mean, the, even the US has got some numbers that as you project forward in terms of interest cost on the debt, unless something dramatically changes, it doesn't seem very promising. Yeah, I think enough ink has been written on the massive increase in the stock of debt of developed countries post-financial crisis and again, post-COVID. So, you know, we all know that the stock is very high. When you look at the literature on crises, it actually suggests it's less the stock that triggers crises, it's more the rate of change in the stock. And certainly post-COVID, that's been one of the areas that has worried me, as we've seen, especially in advanced economies, massive rise in fiscal outlays to smooth out the edges of the global halt in activity and, and supply chains that we experience. That by itself is concerning in the medium term. But what we're now seeing with the inflation spike is on top of the rising stock of debt, government debt in particular, we're facing the specter of ever higher interest rates, not just in policy rates of the short term, but the longer end as well. And by itself, that's very concerning. And then you mix it with two other factors, you know, in my mind, at least, all of this creates the groundwork for lots of political mistakes that could get us into trouble. What are the two factors? One of them is that I see what happened in the UK as an outcome of the situation, not necessarily an isolated incident and solely dependent on the mistakes that policymakers in the UK have made starting in 2016 and up to the latest government change. But the fact that when you have pressure points, macro instability like this, there are bound to be multiple places where financial crises and pressure points arise because people have been borrowing short-term and lending long-term and they get into a liquidity crunch. 
And if you just have, you can just look at the recent liquidity conditions table that the IMF financial stability report put out. It's a good one. It's a nice shorthand for it. There's a lot of stuff at red right now. In a situation like this, when rates have unexpectedly risen so quickly after a prolonged period of very low rates, there are going to be accidents. I said that to our firm before the UK and afterwards. I said, this won't be the last one. And the whole nature of these accidents is you're not going to know ahead of time which one. And where, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. But to me, that's a big risk. And when you have crises like that come up in a context of an unstable macroeconomic backdrop, that's when policy mistakes happen. And it's that mix of a policy mistake response to unexpected crises within a fragile economic system that really can cause a downward spiral. So that worries me. That keeps me up at night. And then on top of that, all you need to do is listen to people like Larry Summers, who obviously has been proven right on his concern about inflation and late reaction function by the Fed and others. When you hear him, his view is that in order to get to the inflation level that the Fed would be comfortable with, unemployment in the U.S. has got to come up to around 6%. You know, you hear that, you think, well, maybe the market's, <laughs> market is behind the curve right now. But even the meaningful risk of an environment like that, I think just adds to the whole fragility of the situation. So all of those weaknesses and potential for accidents interacting with the polarized environment, political environment that we have, especially in advanced economies, especially in the U.S., and interacting with a land war in Europe and interacting with major political discontinuity and or continuity beyond expected in China and an expected change in their growth trajectory, that does not bode well for the uncertainty of markets going forward. And I think markets are not pricing in all of those things interacting with each other right now. Well, you referenced the the IMF table on government bond market liquidity, and I'm, I didn't see it myself, but I'm wondering if it's tracking these Bloomberg indices that are essentially looking at the risk-free markets in each of the developed countries and just showing you how that liquidity profile has eroded. And, and certainly even in even in the U.S., it's quite interesting to see. I'm remembering Randy Quarles, who was the vice chair of supervision for the Fed for a period of time. And he had made the comment that he said, maybe these markets, and he was referring to risk-free markets, maybe they're just too big. And I think that the capacity to take down the risk and absorb it on a mark-to-market basis each day when you're seeing such significant swings, it's pretty fraught. It's a really tricky environment to be in. You know, of course, a lot of this just from an inflation standpoint is the fiscal response. There's the supply chain, but then there's the Russian-Ukraine war. And so I was hoping you could just talk to us a little bit about that. You've referenced it a little bit, but as you step back and think about the implications for this war, where it's going, as you try to probability weight some of the paths Talk us through how we should think about incorporating that into the decision tree. 
let me frame it this way. First, the good news. The good news is that as we look forward in the next three to six months, our base case is that Russia holds the line, that Ukraine will make limited gains in the front lines, the Russians will take asymmetric actions against Ukraine and against some NATO countries, and the U.S. and Western sanctions regime will be moderately tightened. That's a base case. What do I mean by Russian's asymmetric actions? Cutting off more gas flow to Europe, lever they have is in Ukraine pipelines. Shocking that that's still flowing, albeit at lower levels. Higher intensity cyber operations, other sorts of disruptions to European infrastructure, similar to the Nord Stream pipeline bombing that are where they have plausible deniability and kind of list of actions like that. So actions that if one had thought about early February this year, you would have thought that was a calamitous outcome. But in the context of what we expect today, that's our base case and the good case. Against that, we have a almost equally high, slightly lower probability of Russia lashing out. And that's directly related to the pace of gains that the Ukrainians can make. In those environments, we can see Russia really intensifying their attacks in Ukraine and upping the game of asymmetric retaliation within NATO and EU. And really, that's the environment where the risk of use of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear starts really becoming more pronounced. So that's the big picture, how we see it. The question that everybody wants to know is what's your the risk you attach to a nuclear, tactical nuclear event? We think the risk remains low, something in the 5 to 10% range, still incredibly uncomfortably high, but in that range. And I frame all of this as the good news, because when today you go into the capitals of the Western countries, and I'm talking here both the U.S. and major European allies. The mood is darker. The percentages that they put on that eventuality is two, three, four times higher than what I just told you. So definitely not a stable equilibrium to look forward to. So why don't we move to China? Obviously, a lot of uncertainty there. They're kind of dug in on COVID zero. I saw in some of your work that comments from the IMF just in terms of reserves uncertainty. The currency is clearly weakening, as are just about every other currency, but maybe they're expending some reserves on that. And then, of course, there's the Taiwan conflict. So I'd love for you to frame out China just in terms of how the U.S. investor ought to be thinking about this as a risk and kind of where you see things going. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we were just coming out of some dramatic scenes within the 20th Party Congress in China, where uh, Xi, President Xi, has consolidated his power. The phrase we've been using is we're now entering an era of maximum Xi. And, you know, we mean that in all of its connotations, more party control over all levers of power, including the economy more tighter grip, flow of information, and 
what they say is a focus less on growth for the sake of growth, more self-sufficiency, and that includes in the value chain for technology, as well as for a more equal distribution of wealth. So that's the context of the top-down policymaking outlook to put into your view on China going forward. And that's a decided break, certainly from where it was before Xi took power, meaningfully even from where it was after his first term all the way leading up to the pandemic. But since then, what we've seen is really his absolute control and his view of the role of China in the future of the world exhibiting itself in economic policy. You know, item number one is that the way the zero COVID policy has been maintained in China. When it first came out, it was understandable to some degree because despite all of its successes, China still in large measure is an emerging market. Big swaths of the country have very poor healthcare system access. And you know, there were legitimate concerns that if you let that go, you'd see multiple X millions of people die in China than what we've experienced in the U.S. or elsewhere. But the fact that he's held on to that even now, the fact that they refuse to engage with proven vaccine technology in the West, especially mRNA, that can be bought and used in reasonable amounts in China even today, in favor of continued lockdowns and this kind of political decision that we have to show that we can do this ourselves even at the expense of growth. This is a portent of things to come for China economically. How that interacts with the fragilities of China's economy is going to be a big part of the next one to five years. And yes, people have been predicting the doom, doom and gloom in China and the bursting of the debt bubble there for over a decade now. I'm not going to be in, get in the business of predicting exact timing here. But the reality is that For its GDP per capita, China's overall leverage is at astronomical levels. We've never seen anything like this in financial history. Uh, Yes, they control the banks and they control state enterprises that have taken out a lot of these loans, and they can extend that out for longer. One can argue the reason the debt is so high is those facts. You're never going to know when something tips over. But one of the ways, one of the pressure points that could really get them in trouble is the exchange rate. And the pointy edge of that is reserves. And there, while the top line number sounds reassuring, yeah, they've stayed at the three billion level since the last three trillion level since the currency was faced its last major bout of outflows in 2015, early 16. The economy has been growing. That means money supply has been rising. And that means even in a semi-controlled capital market like China is, the level of reserves that are adequate for that economy, the threshold for adequacy keeps going up. Meanwhile, their dollar reserves have been stable. In fact, as you alluded to, slightly coming down. So what the IMF did, has, does this for every country, is calculate what the adequate threshold is for China. And what you see when you look at that is that despite the fact that it has by far the largest official reserves in the world, three times Japan's, current trends continue 
they're going to fall below what IMF deems adequacy, minimum lower threshold adequacy sometime in the next year. Now, is that going to mean an immediate crisis? No. But if you juxtapose that against the fact that in order to have growth not crater, they're going to have to keep monetary policy loose, and U.S. and a world where it's going the other direction, the pressure on the currency is going to be high. These political changes are not going to help the situation. In fact, talking to folks in markets, in large private wealth and concentrations, we hear more and more that the Chinese, wealthy Chinese are activating plan B and C and more and more trying to get money around these capital controls that exist. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more tightening of capital controls in the year, next year or two to try to kind of balance that out. That's not going to be helpful to prospects for growth on an economy that's already going to be hobbled with a zero COVID policy that's going to be with us well into 2023. So not a reassuring picture in China. And this is not going to be 2008-9 where they can throw a ton of money at a global crisis and help stabilize demand for, for instance, commodities that were a ray of hope for emerging markets back then. You mentioned that previous period, let's call it uh, late 2015, early 2016, which was a challenging period of time for the currency, certainly a drawdown in reserves. And what I'm remembering then, which is just a little bit now, I wanted to get you to reflect on is the, it seems that the financial channel, the the, the sort of relationship between variables, let's just say like China's currency to US measures like the VIX, it was more intense in early 2016. There was a very high correlation where we'd see the currency sell off overnight. And that was the, that was the trigger for the US vol index to, to rise. Maybe it's just because the U.S. has got a lot of its own internal issues to worry about now, but there just doesn't seem to be as much recognition or discussion about that financial channel. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but it's just something that feels less intense, just the the correlations between the currency and measures like volatility here. Yeah, Dean, I got to tell you, it's so nice to talk to someone who actually remembers a cycle or two. <laughs> It is shocking to see how many of the people who take risk these days really have not learned the lessons of those periods. Yeah, the sensitivity that of Chinese markets to global risk indicators on the financial side has lessened. That is a direct consequence, obviously, of the meaningful capital control measures that they put on, but also, to some extent, the breaking of the back of speculators who spent a lot of blood, guts, tear, and money trying to bet against them and not succeeding. So it's hard to short. It's hard to get your money out. And there's a lot of other volatility going around. So why bother? And oh, by the way, the folks who were the biggest, most active portfolio investors, macro investors in the market back then, many of which are based in Hong Kong, are afraid of getting a knock on the door now and, you know, real risk to their freedom 
if not worse. So I think it's, it's understandable that that sort of sensitivity has come down, but that doesn't mean the risks have come down. That just means the bubble is going to grow bigger and bigger, making the ultimate risk of either series of big financial crisis or a prolonged period of slower growth to try to absorb all of this massive burden of debt. That risk is just going to get higher and higher. But, you know, anybody who spent any time being in China quickly internalizes the fact that if nothing else, Chinese professionals are incredibly bright and incredibly creative. You know, no accident that, you know, uh, next to the U.S., the largest, for instance, tech and internet platforms in the world are Chinese, not European. And they will, when there is a need, they will find a way to get around whatever the government restrictions are. So I think that's where we should be looking at. You know, it's attributed to either Kirkman, ultimately Hemingway, but that quote about crises not happening later than you expect, and when they happen, they happen faster than you think. Doran Bush said it, and, and, and Hemingway as well, some version of it. I think that's at play here. It's going to take a while. We can't time it. But the Chinese are investors and entrepreneurs as we speak, are thinking of ways to hedge themselves, and that's going to have to show itself in the markets at some point. It's a great quote from Hemingway, and I, I also—I actually thought it was Rudy Dornbush who had said it, but someone corrected me that this had appeared in a Hemingway book from a while ago. But it really does speak to the slow motionness sometimes of market prices, and I always say that you know market prices are. are ones that can lull you into a false sense of security. We sort of believe what we see. And so when market prices are dormant, things feel good, and then they can just change. The ground may be shifting beneath us, and we may not realize it because market prices may not be telling us that something's going on. And that's kind of dangerous, especially in light of all of the intervention from central banks. Some of it needed, but some of it feels overdone the way in which they just threw their weight around in, in asset markets for, for years post the GFC. And so let's finish on some of your views on the U.S. I was watching Ian's recent speech, his video, and he essentially made the comment that the U.S. has got the most political dysfunction in the G7. And I thought that was, was kind of sad to hear that. I don't disagree. <laughs> He's the expert, but it's not hard to not hard to agree with that. So talk to us about the current state of U.S. politics, we've got important midterms coming. There's concerns about election security and so forth. And then as we overlay the politics of inflation, it just seems like this stuff's going to get more complicated. But frame out how you and Eurasia are thinking about the U.S. political backdrop. Sure. I mean, in the most immediate sense, we have been saying that we think the midterms are going to lead to what always have almost always happens at midterms, which is the out of power party wins. The our odds for the House are 90 percent. And for the Senate, despite the gyrations of the last few months, we've held that 55 percent chance that the Republicans will win. So to us, that will by itself lead to two years of policy paralysis out of D.C., on almost anything except for the areas that presidents can act by themselves, 
generally that's in the trade area and regulatory area, as well as foreign policy. And of course, two years of investigation upon investigation that's going to just freeze both the risk-taking appetite of the executive branch as well as take up a lot of their times. But you add to that, okay, let me not be all negative. The one positive part of what we of the next few months is that divided government is good for bonds. Back in my old job at Goldman, we did a deep down analysis of what happens to different types of markets when we have united or divided government in the U.S. after elections. And what came through was very high statistical significance that divided government statistically positive for U.S. treasuries. So that's an interesting thing to throw in there. I mean, the exposed rationale is obvious because in divided government, you don't have the Democrats spending a lot unfunded and you don't have the Republicans cutting taxes a lot without any real offsets. But that's that's the good news. The bad news is that while all of that is going on and sounds business as usual, the institution, the political institutions in the U.S., some of the strongest in the world, have been fraying continuously at the edges, you know, accelerated since the insurrection on January 6th. So what we now see is over 230 local election commissions controlled by folks who think that the 2020 election was stolen. And in close elections, these folks can really lead to quite disruptive outcomes. We may not have to wait till 2024 to that. If we have Georgia Senate election coming up, if nobody reaches 50% in the first round, like last time, they'll do a second round and we'll see these dynamics in action. But the fact that massive numbers of Americans think that the political system is delegitimized is both ill for what we are going to face in the years ahead in the U.S. And just to give you a sense of it, Ipsos did this cross-country analysis of the portions of people who think the system is broken. And the U.S.'s response in these surveys is tucked between Mexico and Turkey. Like this is folks' own self-assessment of the brokenness of their systems. And, you know, we're talking about right beside Turkey, who has been effectively being led by a semi-democracy, an autocrat who is growing his powers in the middle of significant financial and economic crises. So in an environment like that, thinking about the implications of a close election in 2024, the next two years after the midterms are going to be filled with not just investigations, but likely impeachment hearings and lots of opportunities for more and more disgruntlement and disillusionment. And we're starting from a high base. In that environment, thinking about the polarization and the risks along the lines of what we saw in January 6th of 2020, that's just quite concerning. If we have a close election, many of these local government official election officials that are now in place who are election deniers themselves 
could throw the outcome of that election into significant doubt. Now, responsible leaders in the U.S. Congress are trying to deal with this. We expect during the lame duck legislation to pass to, to clarify, for instance, the role of the vice president in the election so that Mike Pence's of the world would not be put in the position they were put in. But there's still lots of other ways that a close election could really bring the U.S. political system to a breaking point. And that's really what Ian was talking to. And that's what we're really worried about as we approach the 2024 election cycle. Yeah, you give us a ton to think about there. And the options markets now have an expiration for just about every day. I guess we're waiting for them to list hourly expirations. But, but because there's so many expirations, you can really get granular around these specific event days and the implications for them, just in terms of looking at the difference in option prices. So that should be quite interesting, you know, even to do around, around the midterms. Well, you've given us a, a ton to think about here today. It's been a really wide-ranging conversation as, at a time when, again, the intersection between markets, central banks, and governments just seems to be quite intense and really worth thinking about. So appreciate you spending the time with us today, and it was really good to chat with you. Great. Thanks for having me on, Dean. And again, happy anniversary. (laughs) Appreciate it. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.